Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 27. Genesis chapter 27. We'll be in verses 1 through 40 of Genesis 27 this morning. Walking through Genesis, we are in the account of Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. And our text for today is probably rather familiar for anyone who's, I don't know, grown up in Sunday school and church in general. The story of Jacob and Rebekah deceiving Isaac and Esau so that Jacob and not Esau receives Isaac's blessing that would ordinarily go along with the birthright. I want to review some some of the texts from the last couple chapters that led up to this, first of all, and remind us of the proper perspective on all of this. First of all, what the Lord told Isaac's wife, Rebekah, when she conceived her twins, Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And it says, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. But the one who came out first was Esau. He was the older. The one grabbing his heel was named Jacob, who came out second. So God had predicted so that Isaac and Rebekah would know the older Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. And a nation will come from each of these men. A nation would come from Esau, we know in Scripture as Edom. A nation would come from Jacob, which we know in Scripture as Israel. And so this was a pronouncement not just about the two boys, but about the peoples coming from them and the history that would happen. Now, Genesis 25, 27 says that when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And it says Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. It says once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, or Red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That's all important background material that we preached about already. What God had said about these two boys from the beginning. The fact that they were two very different men as they grew up. That Esau was Isaac's favorite for very, well, not very noble reasons, I suppose. (laughs) Uh, Isaac just liked the fact that Esau was a good hunter and he brought in good food. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And then we saw that Esau 
cared very little for the covenant promises to Abraham coming down through his father Isaac. He cared very little for God's promises and blessings that were connected to the birthright, being the oldest in the family. And so he he swore an oath to sell it to his brother Jacob just to get a pot of to get a bowl of stew that he wanted right there, right then. He was a profane man, he saw was. Jacob was a manipulator. He wasn't uh, <laughs> he wasn't a good man himself either, but Esau was particularly profane and careless. That's all important. And then the last thing that we heard uh, last time in Genesis about Esau was that when Esau was 40 years old, chapter 26, verse 34, he took Judith, the daughter of Biri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimuth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. So he's taking idolatrous women from the land to be his wives, though God had clearly intended Abraham and Isaac's line to be separate from the peoples of the land. And it says, and, and those, those wives made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Again, Esau is demonstrating the fact that he does not care about much beyond his own immediate selfish desires. So now we come to chapter 27, verses 1 through 40. I'm titling this sermon, The Coveted Blessing. The Coveted Blessing. And let's examine, first of all, in these verses, the account of four scheming people. The account of four scheming people. Because all four of the characters in this drama have their own scheme that they're trying to work out in these verses. All four of them. Not one of them comes out smelling good. And yet God's purpose rules overall in this text. First of all, verses 1 through 13, we'll read those verses together. Genesis 27, verses 1 through 13, where we see Isaac and Rebekah pursue opposite agendas. Verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it, and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go, bring them to me. First of all here, we're looking at Isaac and Esau coming up with a plan, a scheme of their own. 
And what's one thing that's striking here is that um, this sort of a meal connected to the patriarch pronouncing God's special blessing on the firstborn who has the birthright, that all would probably normally be a household celebration, a much more public thing. But Esau, excuse me, Isaac seems to be planning here a private, even a secretive ceremony that his wife, Rebecca, happens to overhear that he's planning. <laughs> he, um, he's trying to get away with something here. He knows there's division in the family. His favorite is Esau. He knows what God has said. It's pretty, it seems pretty clear that he would have known what God had told Rebecca when she'd gone to inquire of the Lord when she was pregnant with these boys. He knew God's purpose, that God had, had told Rebecca that the older would serve the younger, the older would not have the preeminence that would go with the birthright. But for whatever reason, Isaac ignores all that, and he wants to get this done as quietly and quickly as he can. He's also concerned, he's in his old age, he can't see very well. He's, about, he's at about the age now where, at which his brother Ishmael passed away. Maybe that's getting him thinking, I don't know. He actually happens to live a lot longer than this, but he is feeling the effects of old age. So he tells Esau, I am old, I don't know the day of my death, so I want you to do this. I want to be sure that you get my patriarchal blessing as the firstborn. Derek Kidner mentions here, says, we shall misjudge the situation if we overlook the evidence of Hebrews 12, 16, and 17, that in selling the birthright, Esau had traded away the firstborn's blessing. This makes all four participants in the present scene almost equally at fault. Isaac, whether he knew of the sale or not, by the way, I think he did, but be that as it may, Isaac knew God's birth oracle of chapter 25, verse 23, Yet he set himself to use God's power to thwart it. He was pronouncing a, a blessing in the presence of Yahweh, in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> Kidner says this is the outlook of magic, not religion. Esau, in agreeing to the plan, broke his own oath. Of chapter 25, verse 33, he had sworn with an oath. Okay, the birthright's yours, Jacob. Rebecca and Jacob, with a just cause, that is, they were, they were aiming at a just cause, but they went about it the wrong way. With a just cause, they made no approach to God or man, no gesture of faith or love, and reaped the appropriate fruit of hatred. We'll get to all that, but the point is, no one's acting straightforwardly here with each other. There's all this intrigue in the household. No one's being up front with each other. It's all on the sly. That's the context here. And Richard Belcher says, Isaac's favoritism for his older son has blinded his spiritual sight. Even though Esau has demonstrated an unwillingness to follow the covenant by marrying Hittite women, Isaac is still trying to give him the prominent position within the family. He also says, although Isaac had emerged in Genesis 26 as blessed by God and a powerful man, he comes across in old age as spiritually blind. That's an important lesson for all of us. No matter 
what attainments of godliness we've had in the past, and Isaac did have them. Last chapter was, uh, it recounted some sin of Isaac, but mostly it recounted his, his godly uh, conduct. But no matter how well we've walked with the Lord in the past, there's always an opportunity for us to have some form of rebellion creep in. Some form of stubbornness in our lives towards the Lord. Wherever we find ourselves in our walk. And then we see Rebecca. Rebecca, when she hears of the plan, she doesn't confront Isaac about it. Perhaps that's what she should have done. And remind her husband, gently, you know what God said about these boys? Rebecca doesn't even try with Isaac. Maybe there's... Maybe they've had conversation after conversation that didn't go well before. We don't know. Whatever the reason, Rebecca decides to work around her husband and try to fool him. And she enlists, she uses her motherly authority. Um, Her grown son is still supposed to honor her, so she acts as if he ought to obey her now in deceiving his dad. (laughs) It's pretty twisted. She tells Jacob, obey my voice and do this. I'm telling you to do it. If, the, if a curse comes on you, you're worried about a curse, let the curse come on me. I don't care. But you have to do this because you ought to have the blessing. She comes up with this plan to hopefully make Jacob seem to the blind Isaac like Esau. Esau must have been really hairy, by the way. She had to put goat skins <laughs> on Jacob. And later that works. The dad's like, oh yeah, that's Esau. (laughs) She has Jacob dress up in Esau's best clothes so they'll smell like Esau. This is an elaborate ruse. Apparently Rebecca knows exactly what kind of food Isaac likes. So she says, eh, Esau can waste his time hunting for game. I can prepare goats that can taste the same. Like some of you ladies try to swap in the sweet potato pie for the pumpkin pie, you know. Some of you are pretty good at that. <clears throat> but this this is quite the ruse. And Jacob, notice Jacob does not object to his mother. Mom, this isn't right. What does he say? Mom, I'm afraid I'll get caught. John Crude says it this way, note that Jacob does not complain about the morality of the act, but his concern is only whether he will be discovered in his his deception. That's Jacob's only concern, a a pragmatic concern. (laughs) My father might feel me, and I'll, I'll seem to be mocking him, and I'll bring a curse on myself, not a blessing, but again, Rebecca had replied to that, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. She's really throwing her weight around (laughs) with her favorite son. Well, that brings us to verses 14 through 29. Let's read these verses. This is where Jacob imitates and supplants Esau. Jacob imitates and supplants Esau. Verse 14, So he went, Jacob went, and took them, the goats, And brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, 
and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? <laughs> By the way, his father thinks something's off here, apparently. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. By the way, some, some look at this, and, and it, it seems, the way the Hebrews set up here, it sounds like Jacob is maybe so nervous that he's just he's saying a little too much in the beginning. Later on, he gives like one-word answers. But um, he's, he's trying to, to schmooze his, his dad. Verse 20, But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. He brings God into this. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, these are Esau's garments, remember, and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, your relatives. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Well, Jacob succeeds in a manner of speaking. He imitates and supplants Esau through lies, deception, invoking God as the one who brought him success in such a quick hunt. And Isaac has doubts all the way through, but he finally convinces himself, apparently, my hearing must just be off. Because everything else about this this man in front of me is Esau. Isaac here is not just pronouncing just his wish for blessing on the one he thinks is Esau. It's a prophetic oracle connected to the fact that Isaac is the promised seed, the promised offspring of Abraham. He's the patriarch now. He's blessing on. He's passing on the blessing now, not just of any family, but the blessing of the promised offspring, the line of promised offspring that God promised would one day bear the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. This is a sacred um, line of offspring, and God is speaking through 
Isaac here, even though Isaac is deceived and he's actually trying to fight God's purpose at a certain level. And we see that later as Isaac recognizes what he had said earlier about Jacob when he thought Jacob was Esau. It was an irrevocable prophetic decree. It couldn't be taken back. But of course, Jacob. (laughs) Jacob lives up to his name, as Richard Belcher says. He is a cheating and lying schemer who is willing to manipulate and take advantage of other people's weaknesses. Such is the one through whom the covenant promises will be entrusted. One wonders how secure the covenant promises will be if they are passed on to Jacob. Yet, as with all of us, God is not finished with Jacob yet. See again, just a reminder, Jacob and Rebekah seem to succeed in the moment here. But this is just setting the stage for God's work on Jacob. And he will abundantly reap what he sows here as well. Jacob's not getting by with anything, though God is using Jacob's flawed actions to fulfill his own purpose. Keep that in the back of your mind. When Isaac pronounces the blessing on on Jacob, thinking he's Esau, he, he says, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Speaking of um, fertility, speaking of plenty of provision from the sky and from the land. It's an all-encompassing blessing. Um, Everything you would need, whether from the sky or from the earth, is yours. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Again, this isn't just talking about Jacob personally, but about the nation that would come from him. His descendants would be God's special people. And all peoples would need to bow before Jacob's line. And ultimately before the Messiah that would come from Jacob. Be Lord over your brothers. May your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And of course that is what God had told Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham's promise is being passed specifically to Jacob. Though Isaac thinks he's giving it to Esau. Now we come to verses 30 through 40. Where Esau discovers and bewails his disinheritance. He discovers and bewails his disinheritance. Let's read verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father... Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. 
Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Which can have the connotation of supplanter, deceiver. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high, that is, away from all those blessings, all those provisions. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. When Esau first came in and first greeted his father, What ripped through Isaac in that moment? When it says that Isaac began to tremble, Isaac trembled very violently. Hebrew literally says, he trembled a great trembling exceedingly. It's saying it as expressively as it possibly can. Isaac was shaking from head to toe when he realized what had happened. So Isaac and Esau have this back and forth where Esau cannot believe this. Neither can Isaac, but Isaac resigns himself to it. This is what happened. It can't be undone. And he realizes this was Jacob who did this. It was his voice. But he shall be blessed. This is God's word on the matter. It's over. Derek Kidner writes, Isaac's yea and he shall be blessed expresses more than mere belief that the spoken word is self-fulfilling. He knows he has been fighting against God as Esau has and he accepts defeat. I think think that's right. Isaac moves here from willful blindness to to submissive faith in God's plan, even though it wasn't his plan. He realizes he can't fight God. Isaac also realizes that this means his son Jacob has been up to no good and did something very wrong in deceiving his own father this way, making a fool of him. So there's such a mix of emotions in Isaac. The hurt because of what Jacob did, but the realization also, God did this too in the ultimate sense. And so there is faith here for Isaac as the story unfolds. As Hebrews 11.20 puts it in the end analysis, it says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. We'll also see that play out further um, as, as we go further in Genesis later, in later sermons, Isaac later reaffirms God's blessing upon Jacob. Uh, he is accepting of it. But Esau, 
Esau's response is not Isaac's response. Esau just says, Jacob has lived up to his name. He's rightly named Jacob. And he says, if I can find it here. He says, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my my birthright. And behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Well, had Jacob indeed cheated Esau out of his birthright? Well, Jacob had certainly worked on Esau's untamed cravings. He'd been a little manipulative. But Esau knew exactly what he was doing when he sold his birthright with that oath. Now he's blaming it all on Jacob. But in his frustration at Jacob's sin, he still doesn't see his own profane attitude and his broken oath. It's all Jacob's fault. That's what we do so often, isn't it? find someone else who's also a sinner to blame for some of what's our fault. And unlike his father Isaac, Esau does not humble himself before God's mighty hand. He blames his misfortune entirely on Jacob, and he's full of these continued demands for God's blessing. And Esau cries out with angry tears, but they're not repentant tears. He can't find it within himself to repent. He's a profane man, a godless man. He just thinks he's been ripped off. And that's all he can see. So Isaac gives a blessing that's not really that much of a blessing. He says, this is all I have left to say about you, Esau, now, as a prophetic word about you. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. So, he won't have a lot of the, the blessings, the resources, that are, would be Jacob is in the land of Canaan. And historically this works out in the fact that Esau's people, Edom, go to live in the land of Seir, which is a dry, barren wilderness, for the most part, south of Canaan. But he would make a living by the sword, plundering others, as Andrew Steinman puts it, plundering others rather than reaping bountiful crops. But, Isaac says, when you grow restless, you shall break Jacob's yoke from your neck. And again, this isn't talking so much about Esau himself as about the nation of Edom. They were subservient to Israel and to Judah for a long time. But then in the days of Judah's king Jehoram, Um, the Edomites broke free from David's dynasty and they set up their own king again. They broke the yoke. They'd successfully rebel. And Esau's descendants would have short-term success in rebellion against Israel. But later scripture reveals that Abraham's offspring of promise would put even Esau under their feet in the end. The rebellion wouldn't last forever. Obadiah, verse 18. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. 
In verse 21, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And Derek Kidner writes that Isaac pronounces over Esau the appropriate destiny of the profane person. The freedom to live unblessed and untamed. That's so often what the profane person inherits. They're relatively free, in a sense, but they're free from a lot of God's blessings, and they're free to be untamed by God's discipline. Well, what's the big idea of the text? I'll say this more than once. The big idea, I think, is that while sinners scheme for dominance, they scheme to be on top, While sinners scheme for dominance, it's God's wise plan which will be exalted. I'll say that again. While sinners scheme for dominance, it is God's wise plan which will be exalted. Let's talk about the application to our sinful schemes so often. First of all, God isn't hindered by your contrary schemes. God isn't hindered. He's not frustrated by your contrary schemes. When you think you have a plan that not even God is going to foil. This was the lesson for Isaac and Esau. Isaac learned it, but Esau did not. Psalm 94, verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of the people. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Same word for vanity, emptiness. Proverbs 21.30 No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel, no plans you put together, can avail against the Lord. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30. One other text, Isaiah 29.15-16. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So much of our sin is just this stupid idea that we can find a way around God. Or that he'll at least overlook whatever we want to do and accomplish. We can have our own way, we think. It's not going to end up that way. Such a basic truth, but so necessary. God is not hindered by your contrary schemes. And you will find it out the easy way or the hard way. He's the almighty God. He's everywhere present. He sees everything. He knows you better than you know yourself. You really think you're going to get away with something? Often we, we have these schemes because we think that we know better than God does how to make ourselves happy. We think we know better what we need. And that God maybe doesn't care about us. That he's not a good God. 
We'll make a good God for ourselves. We'll make our own decisions. And so we try to get around God, which is a futile endeavor. But secondly, not only is God not hindered by your contrary schemes, God doesn't need your presumptuous schemes. And if you seem to succeed in getting a good result through sinful means, don't think for a moment that God approves of your presumption. You might seem to get away with something, but you didn't. This was the lesson for Rebecca and Jacob. And the next few chapters will focus on Jacob's continuing education in these matters. As Jacob wrestled with men and with God, he had to learn about his own sin, and he had to learn about God's grace. So don't presume to act as if God needs your crafty schemes. Sometimes he wisely allows us to pursue such a course for a while, but his correction is waiting for us up ahead. He doesn't need your help, and his holy wisdom does not countenance your twisted rationalizations. If God's word is clear about something, even if you're his child and you think I'm good with God, but if God's word is clear about something, don't you dare complicate it with what you think is the best way to do things. Perhaps Rebecca and Jacob, if we questioned them on what they were about to do in this chapter, they might have said, well, okay, you just don't understand our family situation. It's a wreck. If we tried to be straightforward about this, it would never work. You don't understand. And in saying such things, they would be indirectly slandering God, as if God weren't able to help, he weren't able to accomplish his purpose that he had promised, or as if God would just let things mess up his plans. But God doesn't need our presumptuous schemes. You say, how can God bless me unless I cut some corners just this once? Well, hold it right there. Stop judging the unfathomable ways of the Almighty God by your limited senses. You don't know everything. In fact, you know very little. Sometimes... I know it feels like we have all the facts. And with all the facts laid out in front of us, it's impossible for God to do what he said he would do. We think. That's not true. Don't measure God by your own standards and by what you can sense and see and feel. In a way, these first two applications flow into my third and last one. Um, They might be summed up in the last one, you might say. And that is that God will be exalted over every arrogant scheme. God will be exalted over every arrogant scheme. Like Rebecca and Jacob, some of you may learn the hard way to trust God rather than your own schemes. As I said, the rest of the story of Genesis will reveal that Jacob and his mother Rebecca did not enjoy the results of what they did. Though their actions in this chapter were providentially used as as God's judgment on other people, (laughs) Jacob and Rebekah would themselves 
experience great trouble, heartache, terror, because of what they did. The family would be, would be broken up. Rebecca's favored son would be exiled because now there's murderous hate at work in the family. And scripture seems to indicate that Rebecca never saw Jacob again. And God also arranged future events to teach the exiled Jacob what it meant to be cruelly manipulated and to get ruthlessly cheated. Uncle Laban was waiting for him up north. And he was a match for Jacob on that count. Like Esau with his birthright, some of you arrogantly assume that you can despise and barter away gospel privileges until you're ready to return and collect gospel blessings. I don't need that until I'm good and ready for it. What good does the birthright do me right now? I want food. I want what I want now. I want to enjoy life now. I'll come back for the blessing when I'm good and ready. It'll still be there for me. That's your arrogant scheme. Live as you wish, but obtain God's blessing when you really want it. But it doesn't work that way. Turn with me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 15. Writing to, uh, as we've explained many times, writing to Jewish Christians who are tempted to trade away their birthright of the gospel they've received in Christ for the, for the temporary gain of being accepted by their Jewish relatives and friends. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, referring to the book of Deuteronomy, a root causing bitterness that would, a, a, a person who would be an apostate walking away from God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral, or you could look, look at that as a spiritual fornicator perhaps, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, this is our chapter here, Genesis 27, you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. <coughs> you reject repentance now, you can't just get your heart good and ready to repent whenever you want. You might have a lot of tears at the consequences of losing out on God's blessings, even the blessing of eternal life. But tears themselves aren't going to do a thing for you. Luke 8, 18, Jesus tells us, take care then how you hear. That is when you're listening to what God has to say to you. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. This isn't something you can set on the shelf and think, oh, I, I have that when I need it. No, either you actively 
pursuing God's blessings or you are despising them and you cannot just return any time you want. Like Isaac with the patriarchal blessing, some of you may have true faith in God, but you're knowingly resisting God in one pivotal area. Believers can do that, you know. If you belong to God, just just admit you're fighting a losing battle. And this is all bound up so often with our emotions and our, our affections that are, that are turned a certain direction, like with Isaac towards Esau. He wants something really, really bad. He wants Esau to succeed. He wants him to, to get the birthright and the blessing. He wants that for his son. But God has said it's not going to happen. In that case, that's what God had said. God will be glorified in your life, and he will bring you to repent of your own arrogance. And the longer you resist, the more you may be left trembling and speechless when God finally brings your plan crashing down around you. And meanwhile, you you might do great harm to the very things you think you're protecting. Esau got further hardened in this whole process. Isaac wasn't helping his son by giving him this this petty favoritism. Isaac chose to prioritize his desires for his firstborn son over God's clear statements about his plan. And you know, in this way, Isaac failed to imitate, in this instance, he failed to imitate the faith of his father Abraham. What had Abraham done? At God's command, Abraham was willing to send away his firstborn Ishmael so that Isaac, the child of promise, would have all the inheritance. And at God's command, Abraham was even willing to sacrifice Isaac himself. But when that test came around to Isaac, Isaac failed the test. What are you choosing to prioritize over God's clear statements? And there's no way I can, of course, go into all the possible examples of this. Maybe in your case, it sounds a lot like Isaac's situation. Maybe you're honoring your children or other loved ones above God. That's often a temptation. Or are you intentionally ignoring your clear duty in one other specific situation? Wherever that puts you. You know your duty in one specific situation, but you won't do it until God gets your attention in a big way. In the end, we all have, we all have to honor God's wisdom above our own. We have to trust, and here we get, as we wrap up into gospel truth directly, we have to trust God's righteousness rather than our own self-centered sense of morality, what we think is right and wrong for us. We have to accept God's gift of justification through faith alone rather than our plan to try to justify ourselves before God on our own merits. And we have to submit to God's purpose to exalt Jesus, his son, as Lord and Christ rather than acting as the rebel kings of our own lives. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 12 It speaks here of nations and kings, but it also reflects 
just the human heart in general, the human heart of rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't like God's restraints on us. We don't want to serve him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, that is, do homage to the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Then the last statement of the psalm is this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Stop fighting God's plan and embrace Jesus Christ. And for us believers who have a solid claim to having done that, be consistent with it. Every time a thought, a plan pops up in your heart that raises its head against the Savior, put it down. So I close with 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 through 5. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds is the apostle Paul engaged in warfare against? What's he talking about? Well, next verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what we must be about in the church, in our own hearts. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. You'll be blessed if you do that. You're taking refuge in Christ then. But don't fight him. That's a losing battle. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word, for its warnings, and for its comforts. Please, please take away all the things that are standing in the way of, of your word having its proper effect. There's so many different people with different needs represented here, but I know they're all sinners who need a Savior. We all need to simply have Jesus Christ and receive him with open arms. So Lord we ask that you will make us submissive. Joyfully lovingly submissive. To your son today. And we pray this in his name. Amen.